0: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Altogether, the grass withers, the fowler flades, but the word of our God will stand forever."
1: Will you please remain standing for a moment longer as we just invite the Spirit to be present during the time of teaching. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, we ask uh, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would uh, make us um, tender to what you have for us in your word. Um, I pray that you would uh, be with me, that these words would um, speak to me first, even um, I pray, Lord, that um, where there is suspicion and sarcasm, um, I pray that you'd put that away, that we could just experience you with delight and anticipation. Would you do that, Lord? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I, um, we started, we're in the sermon series on Ephesians, and uh, so, if you're new, what we do is we just take a part of the Bible, and we explain it and apply. it. so that's what we're gonna do. Last week, um, I told you that um, I mentioned that I had the privilege of watching the musical Hamilton. It was in Puerto Rico in 2018. I didn't win the lottery that got the tickets. Just as sweet friends of us who loved us wanted us to have that experience. And uh, let me just tell you, it was awesome. Like, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I don't know how they do it. I mean, it's like guys and girls singing hip-hop set to the stories of history that I slept through through in ninth grade history. And it's spectacular. Like, it's amazing. Uh, it's kind of haunting, if you know the story, and enchanting. And I left uh, wanting more because it was so compelling. Now, in 2018, that same year, almost a billion dollars were spent by people like us going to Broadway shows. And that number, however big it sounds, pales in comparison to the almost $500 billion of cash that we threw at the cinemas watching movies, right? I'm pretty sure like a fourth of that probably just went to the, to the Marvel universe, right? Um, and, and But why is this? Why, according to Nielsen, do Americans watch five hours of TV a day? What's up with this insatiable appetite for plays and movies? And it's that we are hungry for stories. We need stories. Stories are the way that we interpret and make sense of our lives, actually. God made us that way. But here's why this is so tricky. Like sociologists and psychologists note that stories form a filter for understanding the world. So stories make events meaningful, right? So we're meaning makers. They bring coherency to what is otherwise a bunch of random happenings in our world. Stories are filters or lenses that show us our place in the world, How the world works, how to evaluate things, and how to act in the world. Stories are primers and guides on how to interact in the world. Now, keep following me here. With time, the stories we live by socialize us, and they make certain things desirable, and they make other things undesirable. See, a story is what shapes our perception of the good life. And here's the thing. There are a variety of stories that are we're inundated with and that are competing for our minds and competing for our hearts. And there is no escape from these stories. We need them. We love them. So Bradford Hall, Dr. Bradford Hall, he's a professor of philosophy and language. He actually proposes a few common storylines or narratives that are present in our culture. He says, like, the first storyline or narrative is consumerism. Consumerism is the story that says that the good life is tied to having the kind of stuff that other people want. So so people look at your things, look at your stuff, and they want to emulate you. And when the world is seen through that lens, through that storyline, there is this intrinsic value in the things we have or the vacations that we take. And so for this reason, people will organize their lives to acquire, uh, to go on trips, or to protect their belongings. That's where they would say the good life is found, is in things and travel and so forth. And so generosity is actually an affront to that storyline. There's a second one that he talks about, and it's the narrative of secularism. Uh, Secularism sees the world as disenchanted. It's a world where no supernatural or spiritual realities exist. Uh, In this case, the the good life will come as soon as we shake off those naive and antiquated superstitions that are holding us back from what we really want, right? And so in that storyline, faith is an affront to secularism, to that storyline. And it'll even feel a little bit embarrassing if you have too much faith. A third storyline is nationalism. Nationalism, you know, kind of rears its head every four years, it feels like, is a story that says that the good life that we desire is tied to our country and our national aspirations. And the way that to make this life a better one is by pursuing the purity of our country and our national aspirations And what we and our children need in order to have the good life is a country to grow up in that reflects our values. That's a a real compelling narrative, even in our churches. The last narrative is progressivism. He says that progressivism rests on the vision of the world that the good life is actually found in our advancement. That we gotta constantly be moving forward and deconstructing um, the assumptions and the moral straitjackets of the past. And by doing so, if you do it, you'll get the good life. You'll get the utopia that you're looking for. And in, in that storyline, instead of being dutiful, you gotta be authentic to yourself in order to have the, the good life. You gotta be authentic. And so these storylines unconsciously promote and socialize us into competing ideas about the good life and how to get it. Listen closely. All of those, although each of them might have hints of wisdom, they're all ultimately bankrupt. They will rip the life out of you and your family. And as we're going to learn today, the good life is found when we're hidden in Christ. This is kind of hard to believe, though, because these alternate stories that we're drinking at a rate of five hours a day, apparently, every commercial, every show, every movie are just saturating us. And uh, you and me and our children are indoctrinated by these alternate stories that teach us that the good life is to be found somewhere else other than God. And so we throw our money, billions of dollars, at getting these competing stories deep in here, in our hearts. So understand, listen, the issue is not, will you seek discipleship or will you disciple your children? Because that's already happening, even if you don't show up to CWD. The question is, is what story about the good life are you and your children being discipled into so every, sto- every Sunday, we, we retell a different story, right? This entire service, you guys, is constructed around a sacred story. We rehearse it together, and we've got one hour a week and significantly less money to make sure that we get that true story deep in our hearts, deep in our bones. Now, listen, I'm a Latino, so I'm speaking kind of emotionally about it, but we ought not to be, like, alarmists about this. We don't need to freak out and write blogs what we need to do is just buckle down, joyfully make some course corrections and, uh, and help our lives reflect this story, right? This morning, I'm really thankful. Ephesians chapter two, one through 10, we're gonna get some help. What we're gonna see in these 10 verses uh, is that the apostle Paul, he does not simply just give you bullet points on what to believe about God and us. He gives us a story which, We want it to saturate our souls at the deepest levels. See, belief in God is not simply a belief that we look at. All right, are you following this? Belief in God is not simply a belief that you look at. It's a belief that becomes a lens through which we see everything else. And so this is a story that helps us interpret ourselves and God and the world. And so this morning in this letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he's going to give us a story in kind of three parts, and this will be our uh, outline this morning. Uh, He is going to tell us what went wrong, part one, like why is humanity a wreck? Why are we a wreck? Part two, what did God do to fix it? And then part three, for what purpose? Like why are we here in this world? So with that introduction, let's begin with what went wrong, verses one through three. Now, every, uh, every week here at Denver Press we speak about the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, that word good and good news is kind of tricky, right? If you go to the movie and someone says, hey, how was the movie? And if you, in that moment, you respond, you know, it was good. Uh, you might as well have said, yeah, it was cute, right? Because when you say it's good, what are you saying? You're saying that it was okay. Because if it was really good, you would say it was awesome. It was terrific, and so the word good in our culture just means kind of medium, right? But when Christians reference the good news of the gospel, we're speaking about something that's so intrinsically compelling that it has no rival. Like it's good in every sense. And so now it's important to understand because the, the, uh, in order for us to appreciate the depth of its goodness— We really have to be clear about the badness, something to compare it to. We will experience the good news directly proportional to how bad we experience the bad news. And so that's why in these first three verses, they paint an extremely dark picture of humanity. So if you'll look there, Paul begins by telling the Ephesians, verse 1, that they were dead in their trespasses. All right, that's kind of an important place to begin and understand. The text, you'll see there, does not say that we were sick in our trespasses. It says that we were dead, spiritually dead. Now, think about this. Like if, you, if you get sick with a cold, you go to the doctor, uh, he gives you a few pills, and you get better. That's wonderful. But now, if you are dead— and your corpse has been lying on the operating table for three days, and now your body's cold. But the doctor comes in and takes a, defibr- a defibrillator. So, you know, I'm talking to a bunch of doctors here, so I better be careful about words here. But anyway, that thing. And um, he jumpstarts your heart with it. And then you come back to life. That's a whole different thing, right? I mean, that's amazing, Right? That's what we're talking about here. Now, this doctrine is sometimes called like total depravity. That's just a fancy word of saying you were totally spiritually dead. Every part of you rebels against God. Now, in my experience, that doctrine is really offensive to people who see themselves as generically spiritual. Like we don't, we don't like to look at beautiful little babies and say, wow, that cute little sack of love is already hostile to God, <laughs> right? <laughs> we prefer to think that, God, that kids are just born innocent and then, they, and then when they lie and manipulate, you think, well, where did they learn that from? They didn't, mama, came from right here. <laughs> like, you didn't have to lie and manipulate your child for them to lie and manipulate you. It just, it comes from right here. You know, Tina Fey, former SNL star, she has two little girls. Um, she's super funny, you guys. Uh, her younger girl, Penelope, when she was two years old, Tina tells a story about how she took her to the local library for story time. And this uh, particular library had this, apparently, this fantastic dollhouse that baby Penelope absolutely loved. But then it was time to go. And so Tina goes to her two-year-old daughter to tell her. And her daughter says, no. So Tina again tells her very politely, very motherly, but like Penelope will have nothing of it, right? So this goes on for a little while until Tina literally has to grab her daughter, hoist her over her shoulder while she kicks and screams. And the screaming like apparently turns up a notch, to the sound of bloody horror, apparently, when a different little girl takes Penelope's spot at the dollhouse. And so this is like, Tina's telling this story, and it's embarrassing. I mean, probably every parent knows what this is like. Um, it's awful. And when they get out, um, Tina says, looks at her daughter in the eyes and says, Don't you, like, like this library? Don't you want to come here more? To which... Uh, this beautiful two-year-old girl responds, no, mommy, I just want to hit and kick all the peoples. (laughs) And all of us are like, amen. Like, I get it. Now, before you judge that cute little girl, she was simply expressing the sinfulness in a less sophisticated way than you and I. Uh, This is true of all of us. It's always been true of us ever since we were born. And why is this the case? Well, in these first three verses, Paul presents this conspiracy of factors that ensure and confirm that we are all spiritually dead. It's the world. It's the flesh. It's the devil, right? Paul says, verse 2, look there, we were following the course of the world, and then it says, following the, the prince of power of the air. That's a fancy title for Satan. And then verse 3, and we're living in the passions of our flesh, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. What Paul is describing isn't just for them. It's for us too, right? This is our story. Well, when you look around and you see the brokenness of the world and even your own heart, you say, what went wrong? Why is, why is the world like this? And the answer is, we are spiritually dead. And this is aggravated and confirmed by this conspiracy between the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of which are sources that ensure that this world, our relationships, the society are steeped in carnage. I mean, I, I can't even read the news anymore without it overwhelming me. But here's why the Bible explanations are actually so sophisticated. I can't just say, I can't just like do or say something bad and say, you know, the devil made me do it. Why? Because, because the, Paul is really clear that the darkness that's out there is also in my heart, right? I am responsible. I'm part of the badness of the bad part of all of this. But at the same time, I, I dare not deny the reality of supernatural evil uh, just because I'm a modern person. Like, that, that there's a, a power out there that's real. And, and the horrors of this world can't be easily dismissed by saying uh, that I am a bad person because I had a bad father or that society twisted uh, me or you, right? It's, it's all of it. It's deeper, it's darker. And, and Satan, of course, wants vitriol to to flourish. In all of these cases... We always include ourselves when we diagnose the problems of this world, and it's dark, and it's bleak. But God, the second part of the story. What did God do to fix that bleakness? Verses four through seven. Do you see that in verse four? See how that starts. It says, "But God." Now, if I was Jason, I'd make a joke about like pant size or something. Uh, big old butt right there in verse four. But God. I'm not going to make that joke. So our dark story is interrupted with this divine action in verse 4. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5, there's that word again, that phrase, dead again. It says, God made us alive together with Christ. So this story has this incredible, inexplicable intrusion, right? Interruption. Although we were children of wrath, God jumps in and rescues us. Now, I want you to think about this kind of like, um, you know, I think about these illustrations a lot because I lived um, by the shore for the last 14 years. Uh, It's like you and I get in this small dinghy, right? A small boat and like a bunch of knuckleheads. We don't check the weather and we row out with our oars to about 100 miles because clearly we have no idea what we're doing. And then this fast-moving storm comes upon us. three are 30-foot waves. We are doomed. Our, our boat is overturned. Uh, but by pure providence, one of those like awesome orange Coast Guard helicopters spots us, right? And the helicopter is um, it's being smacked around by the, the rain and the wind, but a rescue diver jumps in the waves and and gets you, and he puts you on one of those hoists and he lifts you to safety. And now you're back on dry land. The adrenaline is running through your veins and you look at the diver and you say, wow, I was awesome. No, you don't say that. The only thing you contributed was your idiocy, right? You are the beneficiary of that man or that woman's bravery and sacrifice. That is the weight of those words. But God, that intrusion. Verse five, by grace, you have been saved. Grace, by grace, you were rescued. Wasn't you. So that, verse seven, look there, verse seven, in the coming ages, God might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And here's what that means. Here's what this means, that God wants and even longs to spend all of eternity showering you with his grace and kindness. Like a, like a little kid waking up on Christmas morning, absolutely brimming with excitement and eagerness, what God is doing, he's bursting with joy to put on full display his kindness and his love towards you. God is fixing the problem so that there would be this eternal legacy of kindness and mercy. Because we are in Christ or because we are hidden in Christ through faith, the legacy of Christ becomes our own. That's what that's saying. Because here's the thing, just like us, Christ was dead too. Like he he hung on a cross. He really died. But then he was raised from the dead And because we are in him, we are too. Verse 6, look there. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ. Our death would have just ended with ashes, but because of God's grace, we are inseparably tied to Christ's victory, you see. In his story. So he died, yes, but he was resurrected. He was seated in a position of privilege, and so it is with us. And now our, our souls have this profound intimacy with God. I want you to think about that intimacy with God. This is what God did to fix our predicament. Now, listen, Paul is explaining this not simply a belief that you look at and you, and you acquire, right? This isn't just a proposition. This is actually a belief that is so central that we must look through it and to see all other things that bring significance to our lives. Can you actually see how that's an alternate story for interpreting our lives? Can you see how this uh, is just a whole different competing story that we're telling here? Because listen, all of us, every human being, every child that goes to this school Every neighbor that you have has implicit responses to these questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What went wrong? Where am I going when I die? What is a life worth living? Everyone asks those questions, even implicitly. And together they form a narrative. If, when you, if you employ this lens that's offered in these first 10 verses in Ephesians, then it shapes your vision of the good life and how to get it. Now think about it. If you believe that the good life comes from consumerism, then you take and you take and you hoard and you see education just as a means of getting a paycheck, right? Until finally, if you get enough, you feel whole. And does it work? If you believe in nationalism, you're gonna fervently proselytize your political party, right? That's what CNN and Fox News are doing. It's just ideology, right? It's not news. It's just indoctrination. It's proselytization, right? Does it work? If you get it, if you get your guy in, if you believe in secularism, You know, your story ends six feet under the ground. You're deteriorated into ashes. So just cheer up, go nuts, because this is all you got, right? Transcendent meaning's all a joke. No one's actually gonna remember any of this when the sun goes cold. If you believe in the story of progressivism, whatever rights or values you think you are working for today, it's gonna be yesterday's news. No matter how sophisticated and advanced you think you are, your virtues will simply be what people in 100 years laugh at as being, you know, sort of antiquated thinking. The work of your life being laughed at. Yeah, that's a life worth living. That's just something that will wake you up brimming with purpose. Listen, the scriptures are actually offering us this alternative script. It's it's a story about divine interaction with a trajectory of grace for all of eternity. It's a story honest enough to interpret all the stupid things that we've done in our life, but it's also a story hopeful enough for redemption, vesting our present lives with meaning, saying that our present choices actually matter and have eternal meaning. And if you embody this story, the story that Ephesians 2 is actually advancing, if if it becomes a lens for interpreting your life, it has the power to set you free. This is like what I'm begging my own high school children to believe. Believe this story versus the story that you're being told. It's a life that God has designed for you to enjoy. But if you've been discipled into other stories, you'll know it because you're you're riddled with anxiety and chronic anger and cynicism and sarcasm. You'll just be sarcastic about everything and there will be a purposelessness or you'll have to make up a local purpose to tell yourself that your life has meaning. And this, of course, brings us to the final part of the story that Paul is advancing. So, so far we asked what went wrong, verses one through three, what did God do to fix it? Verses four through seven. And now we're going to finish by asking what for or for what? Verses eight through 10. A few years ago, I read this really inspiring story about the cellist in Sarajevo. Has anyone ever? You can look this up. It's incredible. So in the early 90s, if you'll recall, was the Bosnian War. There was this massive siege in Sarajevo, while 22 people were just in a bread line, a mortar hits, and it kills all of these innocent people immediately, only leaving this huge crater. So that area is actually known as Sniper Alley, and it was incredibly dangerous. And there's this gentleman. His name is Vedran Smilovich, and he was incredibly grieved by his own people dying and what was happening. Uh, But what could he do? He was a cellist. He's a musician. And his home, this once beautiful, prospering city, is, is now in ruins. And this is what he decided to do. It's incredible. He puts on his tuxedo, tails and all, grabbed his chair and his cello, and he sits in the middle of this crater And he plays Adagio in G minor. So he takes his gift and he brings beauty to this small part of this broken world. I mean, Smilovich graced the city with this really soulful peace. It haunted and enchanted the hearts of the listeners. This music just piercing the silence. He brought beauty to the horror of this world. And and what it did is it gave people space to weep and to grieve. It gave them space to hope. That's what Jesus does. He runs to the craters. (laughs) He runs to the horror of this world, the mess and the muck. And he brings beauty. This is what all of us are called to do. This is how the Apostle Paul answers the question, for what? Right? And let me explain. Look, look, Paul repeats in verse 8, that refrain from verse 5. He says, you have been saved by grace through faith. Right? In other words, everything's a gift. You didn't do this So don't even think about boasting or bragging about it. God's been merciful to you. You you are just a beneficiary of grace, right? You didn't earn it by being good. But for what? But for what? Verse 10. You were created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Can you see the implication there, you guys? You're made in God's image to do what he does. Christ ran to the horror of this world and brought beauty. And so when you read those words, good works, right, these aren't things that we do in order to win God's approval. Like, God, let me just do good work so I get credit to get into heaven one day. No, that's not what he's saying. It means to live for God's purposes. It's, it's taking our talents and offering up in service to God and others. It's saying, don't stay on the sidelines. In the w- words of uh, pastor, Ray Cortese, he says, when you drink of grace, you become gracious. When you drink of grace, you become gracious. That's what you were made for. God prepared work for you to do. It's time for us to get off the sidelines, set our chair in the middle of the crater, play the cello or whatever talents or callings God has given you. That's what I'm dreaming for for Denver Prez, that we would become this factory of beauty, that we would be in the business of cultivating beauty and good works. This church, you guys, will not become a self-licking ice cream cone. Remember my very first sermon I ever gave here, I think it was online, I talked about this. Y'all know what a self-licking ice cream cone is? That's a weird thought. It's an ice cream cone that licks itself, and so it's good and delicious, but it's not good for anyone. It just serves itself. That's it. No no shared delight, just self-licking. I don't want us to be that. Like, oh, we're so cool for ourselves, I guess. I don't want that to be us. Y'all, we, because um, we've been in a pandemic and it feels like we're in a holding pattern, like we're just passing time so we can get back into our real life, right? This is your real life. You hear me? This is your real life. God is calling you to live into the story, to bring good works and beauty. That's the story that this church wants to disciple you into. No more waiting. This is, like, there's not gonna be another day where all of a sudden you just, you move out in courage. It's time. Let me summarize, um, and I'll land the plane here. Let me summarize kind of the force of verses 1 through 10 with a true story, because I, I want you to feel what's at stake. Um, you guys know that I was, I was actually sent to Puerto Rico to plant churches by a big church in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. So it's an extremely large church. It's a few years ago now, but the daughter of the music director, at this church, uh, she was a college student and she studied in Birmingham also. She just went to a local university there in Birmingham. And so one, she you know, left her dorm room and she came home one night to have dinner with her parents, to wash her clothes. Um, she's a, she was a great kid, loved Jesus. Um, their house was on a very major street. After a fun night, it was a Sunday night uh, with her family. She, left, she got in her car and left. And less than a quarter mile from her parents' home, a young man who, is also, who also goes to the same church was going too fast, runs into her car, killing her instantly. And the entire church, right, of course, is grieved and brokenhearted, none more than her parents, of course. Thousands of people came to the funeral service. It was all extremely touching, But after the service, there was this inner group, a smaller group of friends, who went to the home of the young man. And of course, like he's reeling with what he has done, right? And the family sang a few songs. Um, The friends sang a few songs with the family. But then the father of the young lady, who also went to this house, he says, okay, this is enough. This is enough. He looked at this young man and said, My daughter's life is over, but I'm afraid that we're going to lose you too. Don't waste your life. He says, I don't hold anything against you. I love you. Can you imagine that? You must. You must imagine that because that's what God did. You killed his boy. Our sins are what nailed him to the cross. But the Father looks at us and says, okay, that's enough. I love you. You're forgiven. Don't get lost. Make your life worth living. Lean into that grace. Lean into that story. Make, it, make that be the story of all stories. Amen? Amen.